reports about two of the September 11th hijackers casing airports around South Florida and inquiring about renting crop-dusting aircraft. Anthrax could be distributed from a small airplane. Stevens went into a coma, and at about four o'clock in the afternoon of Friday, October 5th, he suffered a fatal breathing arrest. Minutes later, one of his doctors made a telephone call to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, in Atlanta, and spoke with Dr. Sharif Zaki, the chief of infectious diseases pathology. Sharif Zaki is a shy, quiet man in his late forties, with a gentle demeanor, a slight stoop in his posture, a round face, and pale green eyes distinguished by dazzling pupils give him a piercing gaze. He speaks precisely in a low voice. Zaki went out into the hallway, where his pathology group often gathered to talk about ongoing cases. Mr. Stevens has passed away, he said. Who's going to do the post, someone asked. A post is a post-mortem exam, an autopsy. Zaki and his team were going to do the post. Early the next morning, on Saturday, October 6th, Sharif Zaki and his team of CDC pathologists arrived in West Palm Beach in a chartered jet, and a van took them to the Palm Beach County Medical Examiner's Office which takes up two modern, one-story buildings set under palm trees on a stretch of industrial land near the airport. They went straight to the autopsy suite, carrying bags of tools and gear. The autopsy suite is a large, open room in the center of one of the buildings. Two autopsies were in progress. Palm Beach medical examiners were bending over opened bodies on tables, and there was an odor of fecal matter in the air, which is the normal smell of an autopsy. The examiners stopped work when the CDC people entered. We're here to assist you, Zaki said in his quiet way. The examiners were polite and helpful, but did not make eye contact, and Zaki sensed that they were afraid. Stevens's body contained anthrax cells, although he had not been dead long enough for the cells to become large numbers of spores. In any case, any spores in his body were wet and wet anthrax spores are nowhere near as dangerous as dry spores, which can float in the air like dandelion seeds looking for fertile ground. The CDC people opened a door in the morgue refrigerator and pulled out a tray. The body had been zipped up inside a Tyvek body bag. Without opening the bag, they lifted the body up by the shoulders and feet and placed it on a bare metal gurney. They rolled the gurney into a supply room and closed the door behind them. They would do the autopsy on the gurney in a closed room to prevent the autopsy tables from being contaminated with spores. The chief medical examiner of Palm Beach County, Dr. Lisa Flanagan, was going to do the primary incisions, while Zaki and his people would do the organ exams. Flanagan is a slender, self-assured woman with a reputation as a top-notch examiner. Everybody gowned up and they put on N100 biohazard masks, clear plastic face shields, hair covers, rubber boots, and three layers of gloves. The middle glove was reinforced with Kevlar. Then they unzipped the bag. The CDC team lifted the body up, gripping it beneath the shoulders and legs, and someone snatched the bags out from underneath it. They lowered the body back onto the bare metal deck of the gurney. Stevens had been a pleasant-looking man with a cheerful appearance. He was a bluish color now, and his eyes were half open. Heraclitus said that when a man dies, a world passes away. The terribly human look on the face of the deceased man disturbed Sharif Zaki. It was so hard to picture this man in life, 
and then to connect that picture with the body on the gurney. This was the toughest thing for a prosector, and you never got over it, really. Zaki did not want to connect the living man with the body. You had to put it aside, and you could not think about it. His duty now was to identify the exact type of disease that Stevens had, to learn if he had inhaled spores or perhaps had become infected some other way. The team rolled Stevens onto his side and inspected his back under bright lights for signs of cutaneous anthrax, skin anthrax. They didn't find any. Dr. Flanagan took up a scalpel and pressed the tip of the blade on the upper left part of the chest under the shoulder. She made a curving incision that went underneath the nipples, across the chest, and up to the opposite shoulder. Then, starting at the top of the sternum, she made a straight incision down to the solar plexus. This made a cut that looked like a Y, but with a curved top. She finished it with a short horizontal cut across the solar plexus. The opening incision looked rather like the profile of a wine glass. Dr. Flanagan grasped the skin of the chest and pulled it upward, peeling it off. She laid the blanket of skin around the neck. She pulled the skin from the sides of the chest, revealing the ribs and sternum. She took up a pair of gardening shears and cut the ribs, snipping them in a wide circle around the sternum. This was to free the chest plate, the front of the rib cage. When she had finished cutting the ribs, she pushed her fingertips underneath the chest plate and pried it upward, as if she was raising a lid from a box. As Flanagan lifted the chest plate, a gush of bloody fluid poured out from under the ribs and ran down over the body and poured over the gurney and onto the floor. The chest cavity had been engorged with bloody liquid. No one in the room had ever done a post on a person who had died of anthrax. Zaki had studied photographs of autopsies that had been done on anthrax victims in the Soviet Union in the spring of 1979 after a plume of finely ground anthrax dust had come out of a bioweapons manufacturing facility in Yekaterinburg and had killed at least 66 people downwind. But the photographs had not prepared him for the sight of the liquid that was pouring out of this man's chest. They were going to have quite a time cleaning up the room. The bloody liquid was saturated with anthrax cells, and the cells would quickly start turning into spores when they hit the air. Dr. Flanagan stood back. It was the turn of the CDC team. The CDC people wanted to look at the lymph nodes in the center of the chest. Working gently with his fingertips, Zaki separated the lungs and pulled them to either side, revealing the heart. The heart and lungs were drowned in red liquid, and he couldn't see anything. Someone brought a ladle, and they started spooning out the liquid from the chest. They poured it off into containers, and ultimately they ladled out almost a gallon of it. Zaki worked his way slowly down into the chest. Using a scalpel, he removed the heart and parts of the lungs, which revealed the lymph nodes of the chest, just below the fork of the bronchial tubes. The lymph nodes in a healthy person are pale nodules the size of peas. Stevens's lymph nodes were the size of plums, and they were purple. Zaki cut into a plum with his scalpel, and it disintegrated at the touch of the blade, revealing a bloody interior saturated with hemorrhage. This showed that the spores that had killed Stevens had gotten into his lungs through the air. When they had finished the autopsy, the pathologists gathered up their tools and placed some of them inside the body cavity. The scalpels, the gardening shears, scissors, knives, the ladle, the tools were now contaminated with anthrax. 
The team felt that the safest thing to do with them would be to destroy them. They packed the body cavity with absorbent batting and placed the body inside fresh double body bags. Then, using brushes and hand-pump sprayers filled with chemicals, they spent hours decontaminating the supply room, the bags, the gurney, the floor, everything that had come into contact with fluids from the autopsy. Robert Stevens was cremated. Sharif Saki later recalled that when he was ladling the red liquid from Stevens' chest, the word murder never entered his mind. The day before Robert Stevens died, a CDC investigation team led by Dr. Bradley Perkins had arrived in Boca Raton and had begun tracing Stevens's movements over the previous few weeks. They wanted to find the source of his exposure to anthrax. They believed that it would have to be a single point in the environment, because anthrax does not spread from person to person. They split into three search groups. One group flew off to North Carolina and visited Chimney Rock while the other two went around Boca Raton. They all had terrorism on their minds, but Perkins wanted the team to make sure they didn't miss a dead cow with anthrax that might be lying next to one of Stevens's fishing spots. Working the telephones, they called around to emergency rooms and labs, asking for any reports of unexplained respiratory illness or of organisms from a medical sample that might be anthrax. A 73-year-old man named Ernesto Blanco turned up. Blanco was in Cedars Medical Center in Miami with a respiratory illness. Blanco happened to be the head of the mail room at the American Media Building, where Robert Stevens worked. Doctors had taken a nasal swab from him, and the swab produced anthrax on a Petri dish. Blanco and Stevens had not socialized with each other. The only place where their paths crossed was inside the American Media Building. The zone of the suspected point source shrank abruptly and the CDC team went to the American Media Building with swab kits. A swab kit is a plastic test tube with a sterile medical swab, which looks somewhat like a Q-tip and has a thin wooden handle. You swab an area of interest, and then you push the swab into the test tube, snap off the wooden handle, cap the test tube, and label it. Later, the swab is brushed over the surface of a Petri dish, and microorganisms captured by the swab grow there, forming spots and colonies. When they were running very short of swabs, Perkins and his people made a decision to test the mail bin for the photo department of the sun. The swab from the mail bin proved to be rich with spores of anthrax. It was brushed over a petri dish full of blood agar, sheep's blood in jelly, and by late in the afternoon of the day the autopsy took place, colonies and spots of anthrax cells were growing vigorously on the blood. The spots were pale gray, and they sparkled like powdered glass the glittery look of anthrax. Something full of spores must have arrived in the mail. It meant that the point source of the outbreak was nothing in nature. On Sunday night, October 6th, Brad Perkins telephoned the director of the CDC, Dr. Jeffrey Copeland. We have evidence for an intentional cause of death of Robert Stevens, he said to Copeland. The FBI needs to come into this full force. Communique from Nowhere October 15, 2001 At ten o'clock on a warm autumn morning in Washington, D.C., a woman, her name has not been made public, was opening mail in the Hart Senate Office Building on Delaware Avenue. She worked in the office of Senator Tom Daschle, the Senate Majority Leader, and she was catching up with mail that had come in the previous Friday. 
The woman slid open a hand-lettered envelope with the return address of the fourth-grade class at the Greendale School in Franklin Park, New Jersey. It had been sealed tightly with clear adhesive tape. She removed a sheet of paper, and powder fell out, the color of bleached bone, and landed on the carpet. A puff of dust came off the paper. It formed tendrils, like the smoke rising from a snuffed-out candle, and then the tendrils vanished. By this time, letters containing grayish, crumbly, granular anthrax had arrived in New York City at the offices of NBC, addressed to Tom Brokaw, and at CBS, ABC, and the New York Post. Several people had contracted cutaneous anthrax. The death of Robert Stevens from inhalation anthrax ten days earlier had been widely reported in the news media. The woman threw the letter into a wastebasket and called the Capitol Police. Odorless, invisible, buffeted in currents of air, the particles from the letter were pulled into the building's high-volume air circulation system. For forty minutes, fans cycled the air throughout the Hart Senate office building, until someone finally thought to shut them down. In the end, the building was evacuated for a period of six months, and the cleanup cost $26 million. The Hazardous Materials Response Unit of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the HMRU, is stationed in two buildings at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. When there is a serious or credible threat of bioterrorism, an HMRU team will be dispatched to assess the hazard, collect potentially dangerous evidence, and transport it to a laboratory for analysis. Soon after the Capitol Police got the call from the woman in Senator Daschle's office, a team of HMRU agents was dispatched from Quantico. The Capitol Police had sealed off the Senator's office. The HMRU team put on Tyvek protective suits with masks and respirators, retrieved the letter from the wastebasket, and did a rapid test for anthrax. They stirred a little bit of the powder into a test tube. It came up positive for anthrax, though the test is not particularly reliable. This was first and foremost a forensic investigation of a crime scene, so the team members did forensic triage. They wrapped the envelope and the letter in sheets of aluminum foil, put them in Ziploc bags, and put evidence labels on the bags. They cut out a piece of the carpet with a utility knife. They put all the evidence into white plastic biohazard containers. Each container was marked with the biohazard symbol and was sealed across the top with a strip of red evidence tape. In the early afternoon, two special agents from the Humru put the containers in the trunk of an unmarked bureau car and drove north out of Washington and along the Beltway. The car came to the main gate of Fort Detrick, where an Abrams tank was parked with its barrel aimed toward downtown Frederick. A little more than a month after September 11th, 